From tornadoes to hurricanes, blizzards, and everything in between, you're listening to the Stormfront Freaks Podcast. The Stormfront Freaks are former television meteorologist Mark Massaro, collegiate senior in atmospheric science Brady Harris, digital meteorologist and weather producer for The Lift on the Weather Channel app Dina Knightley, social media specialist and meteorologist at the Weather Channel Jen Watson, and I'm your announcer and Skywarn Network radio operator Mark Johnson. Now, here's the moderator of the Stormfront Freaks podcast, amateur storm spotter Bill Johnson. Well, welcome to the most entertaining weather podcast on your listening device. We are the Stormfront Freaks podcast. Uh, thank you for listening. Our, our listener base is really growing right now, and we love it, so thank you. This is episode 15. We will be talking with the Weather Channel's winter weather expert, Tom Nizzle, and he'll be joining us in our discussion about the challenges of forecasting winter storm snowfall amounts. Uh, we'll also give you a little sneak peek of next week's episode's guest at the end of the show as well. But we're going to start off introducing the team uh, with finding out what everybody's drinking. And I'll start off a little bit tonight. Uh, I'm happy to tell you guys that, um, you know, obviously for our listeners, we were unable to give you a show last week due to some technical difficulties. Uh, And thank everybody agreed that we were able to come back this week when normally we're only a bi-weekly show and come back. But I was so grateful that Mad Tree Brewing Company here in Cincinnati still had not tapped out of their Pilgrim Pale Ale beer, so I was able <laughs> yeah. to get another growler of this. This is a it's a Yum. it's a seasonal pale ale with vanilla bean, walnuts, and cranberries. Wow! And and this wow. this is my favorite beer of all time. I'm sad that it's only seasonal, but the reason <laughs> I I really like it so much is the aftertaste. It tastes like Captain Crunch Crunch Berries. <laughs> oh my god! Nice. It's delicious. Nice. It is delicious to the palate. So that's that's what I'm drinking. MJ, what do you got tonight? Tonight I have a uh, Grain Belt Northeast, and that of course does not refer to Northeast, but it refers to Northeast Minneapolis. Um, brewed by originally by Grain Belt, uh, a regional brewery, but they uh, went out of business quite a while ago. Now brewed by August Shell a Brewery in New Ulm, Minnesota, a fairly small. Um, not quite a microbrew, but sort of a, re- a regional uh, brewery. So a lot of stories to the uh, Grain Belt name. Grain Belt beer comes out here. That's what I, I remember. <laughs> right. Maz, Maz, what are you drinking tonight? <laughs> oh, I, I got something to go with your crunch berries. I have a wonderful. You have a gla- glass of milk? I, yeah, I've had a bunch of cookies earlier, and I like it because I have some milk right now. <laughs> beer and Thank chocolate you. just wasn't going to cut it. Tanya Santa the rest of the night. All right, Brady, what are you drinking tonight, brother? Well, here's the deal. I've been on a bit of a diet lately, so I've been trying to keep it light. So I was like, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna go grab a Michelob Ultra. It's only got, I think it's 2.6 carbs, which is amazing. So I'm sitting here drinking. I could drink five of these, and that would be the same as drinking a beer. So you know what? I'm drinking my Michelobes. Good for you, man. You, you know what? You, you could drink a couple shots of moonshine and probably still have the same effect without the calories. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I feel it. I feel All right. Uh, Dina. Now, granted, Dina just woke up, and she's going hit to the, hit the bed once we're off the air here. But Dina, are, what are you? Are you drinking anything? Well, I have the sparkling ice, the flavored <clears throat> blackberry, black raspberry. I love this stuff. It's zero calories too, Brady. You could try this. Oh, but Dina, that is my – I love that. I love it that. It is. Because you and I drink perfect. a lot of the same things. Perfect. Because I was yes, drinking the good. same beer last week. and Kicking you know, the dollar at Kroger Ice. That's good stuff. Yeah, those are good. 
Um, <laughs> mainly, I think you and I drink the same thing. So I was drinking that same beer last week. We do, yeah. So was I. We were both drinking the same beer. Yeah, but I needed something to actually quen- like drink the whole thing really fast and not be slurring my words or anything. Although I don't think I could slur my words with one of those beers. Yeah, usually the end, end of the show gets a little bit more difficult to understand. But all right, and, and then as announced on the last show previously, uh, but with us for the first time as our newest teammate and resident freak, Jen Watson. Jen, what are you drinking Ooh. tonight? Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, the amazing and delicious LaCroix. It's raspberry. Oh. It's like oh. sparkling on your tongue. It's refreshing. It's, so it's, it's the raspberry amazing. tonight, huh? And Brady, it is zero uh, calories. Wow. Uh, wait, yeah. what about the carbs, though? What about the carbs? That's what matters. Um, Probably it's zero, zero, zero across okay. the board. Okay. Yeah. Well, I can do it then. I so can do it. You can't taste anything either. You may as well <laughs> have, <laughs> have yeah, a sparkling, really, you sparkling get a hint glass of water. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, and then last but not least, we're, we're, our, our guest is joining us with a beverage this evening, uh, Tom Nizzle. Tom, what do you got this evening? Well, drinking? I'll tell you, in, you know, in honor of the first truly Arctic air getting down into the U.S. over the next week or and a half or two, I decided to go with Sam Adams' uh, cold mm. snap. I think that's apropos. Uh, By the way, it has many, many calories. What kind of a beer is, is cold snap? What is it? It's um it's a a, a white ale so it's um it's one of their seasonal brews and uh, it's it's just it's got a nice light taste to it as well. Very good, very good. Carbs. All right, oh. thousand carbs, yeah. <laughs> Mine <laughs> probably does. Mine's got the vanilla bean, walnuts, and cranberries. So oh, that sounds amazing. So that's gonna yeah. be crazy. All right, and then hey, the Real last nice. thing I want to let you let let our uh, listening audience know is our Stormfront Freaks Raw. Uh, we just launched that last episode. It's our new Stormfront Freaks Raw on YouTube. And basically, we've posted the video version of our show with the breaks and, and everything you don't hear or see on our edited podcast. So, And, and I'll tell you that that might include uh, unedited language. Um, so we'll, we'll warn you about that now but uh episode, oh, no i'm no, i'm gonna episode, have you're gonna have to epi- yeah uh but episode 15 raw is available so just go to our webpage at stormfrontfreaks.com for the links to our youtube channel and if you want to watch it you can watch it as well so all right so let's get to uh the person that we are all here to talk to tonight and want to listen to uh dina can you introduce our guest Sure. Tonight we've got the honor of having Tom Nizzle. He's our winter weather expert at the Weather Channel. And I've known Tom for a long time, but I'm going to give you a little background on him. Um, He worked research when he got out of school. He has over a 30-year career as a National Weather Service forecaster, science officer, meteorologist in charge. He's authored papers on winter weather. He's taught winter weather techniques to forecasters and meteorologists like myself. And um, I love at the end, like when I was talking to him, he said, you know, he loves the snow. He loves hiking, canoeing, kayaking, cross-country skiing. He takes pictures of snowflakes. And, you know, I was just going to add probably like a nice romantic walk on the ice-covered beach. (laughs) (laughs) You know, nothing better than a nice romantic walk on the beach when it's ice-covered. There you go. And and fifty mile an hour winds. Oh yes, you can't. Think. Oh, and then freezing cool. spray. Don't forget this freezing spray. So welcome, Tom. Now it's great to be here. I uh, 
I enjoy being with a bunch of other weather geeks, and this is going to be a lot of fun. Yes. So here, so Tom, here's what I want to know. So you're this uh, winter weather expert. Yeah. When and how did you get that tag? I, you know, I, especially the term expert, I don't know that anybody really uh, should ever be called an expert, but, uh, uh, you know, I was working for the National Weather Service in Buffalo. I, I did that for 30 years. Uh, absolutely loved it there. Got to study some of the greatest uh, winter weather on earth and uh, was all set to uh, to finish my career there and retire. And, and uh, out of the clear blue, I got a call from uh, the Weather Channel and uh, mm-hmm. they wanted uh, they were looking, recruiting for a, a national winter weather expert to cover the, you know, weather across the entire U.S. So uh, I don't know how they got my name, but uh, I, wow, I got this call. I, I thought it was a joke at first, but I figured, you know, they're going to fly me down there. And I actually have never seen the Weather Channel, so didn't think at all that it would involve actually any serious offer to uh, to take the job. But five weeks after I got down there, they called and said, you're our top candidate. And uh, I retired on uh, December 31st, 2011. And on January 4th, I loaded my van and drove to Atlanta. Oh, wow. <laughs> Yay, we're so glad you did. Wow. Tom. wow. So it, it must have, they must have called you because it, it must have been snowing in Buffalo at the time. And they just said, hey, it's snowing there. Let's call that guy. <laughs> <laughs> right? so, that's it. We need somebody there. And, you know what, though? I, I mean, think about it. Uh, think about being in a place where everybody loves the weather and they're all geeky about it. And on top of that, you've got experts in all these different areas and hurricanes in severe weather, you know, tornadoes and, and uh, on and on and on. And so it's like this one giant think tank. And uh, when the weather starts really getting crazy, the place just explodes. And uh, (laughs) it's, I'll tell you, every day I walk through the doors there, I pinch myself before I go into the <laughs> studio because, as Dina knows, it's just so much fun to work there. It really is. It's fun yeah. to work with you. Well, let's, no. yeah, because you're so nice about things. Like, like if he wants something, he'll like, can you please do this for me? And thank you, thank you so much. And you're like, oh, my gosh, you're so nice. <laughs> that doesn't always happen, guys. So. <laughs> yes, it does. It's true. Yeah, it does. Very he true. always says please and thank you. Yes. My mom taught me well, right? Yeah, there you so go. what? So tell me what? What's the difference? Because I don't know how you guys might know better, obviously, than me. But how many people transfer from a government entity like the National Weather Service and transfer into a commercial? Um, company like the Weather Channel, what was that? I mean, what was that transition like? Oh, it 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 was crazy. It had been years since I worked outside of the government, and the government is a great place, um, especially the National Weather Service. I absolutely love that position, but coming into a corporate uh, environment, things were a lot different. Let me tell you one of the things that was really different. If you wanted to get anything done on the government side. It took most of your career to get to that point. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> God. Yeah. At yeah. Uh. At the Weather Channel, something would be discussed one day, and the next day it would be implemented, or qu- even quicker than that. And so the I love the ability to change on the fly. If something wasn't working, you went to something else. Um, I was also overwhelmed, absolutely overwhelmed, by the amount of information 
that gets ingested by the company and then gets turned around and put right back onto air. Um, I remember when I worked in the National Weather Service, we used to have a big screen of the Weather Channel up in you know at the front mm-hmm. of the office, <laughs> and there would be times when storm reports that would come into the National Weather Service office were literally on the Weather Channel within 15 seconds after we issued the report. Uh, Their ability to actually bring in information and then uh, communicate that to their viewers is, uh, I think it's unparalleled. Yeah. Neat stuff. (laughs) We try to go as fast as we can. Yeah. 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 I would agree with that. You know, the other thing that was fascinating for me, it, it was a, it was a completely new education because I came from, many of you may be familiar, National Weather Service offices take care of a local area, maybe a portion of a state. And so you become very good at forecasting for that local area and you know all of the effects there. But I went from forecasting for this little niche in upstate New York. And um, on any given day, I can be talking about snows into the Cascades and the Sierra, while a Denver low is developing for upslope snow there, as a blizzard is finishing in North Dakota, and the lake effect snow is developing um, off of Lake Erie. And at the same time, we've got cold air damming in the Carolinas that is setting up to develop a nor'easter that's going to hit New England. The, The education I had to go through to learn all of that winter weather um, was a challenge, but when you were at that point that I was at in my career, it was fantastic because um, yeah. it it's was new. like going back to school yeah. all over. Yeah. yeah, it's all new. I can see that. And Tom, I, and I've always wondered too. Like, so when you come in, do you like what's a typical day for you? Like, like, do you are you making forecasts for all of those, you know, different types of events, or is it is it collaborative, or because you know it, it's hard to be an expert. On you know when you're on air, it seems like you're an expert of every one of these events. But when you come in, it, it you know there's no way that you you well, can do all that in like an eight hour shift. You know mm-hmm. how do you do that? Uh, it's a very good question. Let me uh, let me back up for a second and just tell you that um, at one point up until last year, at one point um, we had as many as 800 people working at the Weather Channel. Think about that. Wow. Um, mm-hmm. Last year there was a split of the company. Part of the company was sold to IBM, the digital mm-hmm. side. The TV side is still an entity in itself, but the Weather Channel has an entire group of forecasters, uh, part of the WSI Corporation, that actually deal with the day-to-day forecasting like a forecaster would do in the National Weather Service office. So they provide a lot of the background, nitty-gritty daily work of actually going through the model information and and developing a forecast. My job was to come in and coordinate all of that information, work with the news desk and those who develop the shows throughout the day to help determine what the high impact winter weather is going to be across the U.S. And then how do we prioritize communicating that to the public? So that was part of my job. Of course, the part that I love the most is being able to educate the viewers on air and share Mm -hmm. my enthusiasm for winter weather. And that is a riot, you know? So they wanted somebody that would be able to do that. And then 
as an expert, and I had some experience in the National Weather Service working as a science officer who trained the staff, um, I've got the, the luxury, the wonderful opportunity to train a lot of the on-camera meteorologists specifically and for winter weather. I lost. And, and people like me, I think, me Tom, too. you're kind of the Spock. <laughs> the science yeah. off. You're like Spock of the world. It, it <laughs> yes. was always science office suggested to uh, weather service officials, uh, my bosses, that all science officers, uh, male and female, should get pointy ears. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So, Tom, what's the craziest storm you've ever had to forecast, either in Buffalo or while you've been at the Weather Channel? Just like the most difficult storm to forecast and why? Well, there's been so many, um, you know, it's not fair. It's not fair. I, I can, I'll tell you one area I can go to. And that was back last year with the storm. And you'll probably ask us about naming our winter storms as well. There was a storm in January of last year. Uh, we referred to as Jonas. It was a storm that hit at the end of January and produced this absolutely amazing snowstorm. Uh, that went from Washington, D.C. up through New York City, uh, record snows there. That was one of the most interesting storms I worked with because that was a nor'easter that had all of its components come together uh, to produce this massive, massive snow event. Uh, uh, That was one of my favorites. Uh, You know, I I come from Buffalo, and, and we're known for lake effect snowstorms up there. My most difficult forecast and probably the most damaging snowstorm I had seen in my career was back uh, in 2007, I think it was, um, October 12th and 13th, very early in the season. We had a storm that put down 24 inches of snow in Buffalo while there were still leaves on all of the trees. Wow. Um, nice. That produced, in some some estimates, where 90% of the trees in the Buffalo area had some damage to them uh, from this storm. Mm-hmm. And what was amazing is uh, we only forecast uh, three inches of snow or so out of no. that. <laughs> oh, my gosh. You but know what, Tom? A, a bitch for raking the yard. Yeah, it was so ironic about that because people were just in the process of beginning to rake leaves, and uh, <laughs> the next day they were removing full trees out of their yard. <laughs> wow. Here's the crazy part Please. about it, though. This was one of these storms where you've been working there all these years, and it was early October. The temperature of the lake was 62 degrees. Wow. How, wow. how in the world are you oh, going to wow. get snow when just upwind of you, you've got this 200-mile stretch of a lake with 60-degree water. Yeah. Um, but as you all know, as meteorologists, you know, snow doesn't develop down here. It develops up here in the atmosphere. And it was cold enough through that layer of the atmosphere to develop very heavy snow. And, you know, even though it's 62 degrees on the lake, that warm air doesn't go very high off the lake, maybe within the first couple hundred feet, and then it cools down very, very rapidly. So we all learned a lesson on that one, that it's uh, maybe almost never too warm on those lakes to snow, mm. as long as you've got cold enough air moving across them. Yeah. So no. what, a, 
Yeah, coming from Buffalo, that big 84 inches of snow or whatever it was, it was a couple years ago? In yeah. 2000, well, in Buffalo, in uh, Christmas week of 2001, we picked up 82 inches of snow wow. in, in, in one week. Um, the saving grace with that storm that occurred over an entire week. So we had two or three bouts of about two feet of snow through the week, oh one after gosh. another. But everybody was home from school. So all the kids okay. were out of school for Christmas break, and many people were off work at that time. That that was a savior. But what was interesting about that amount of snowfall, especially in an old eastern city like Buffalo, you have all of these neighborhoods with these big houses that are one right next to another with narrow little driveways. It was so difficult to remove all of that snow that rather than shoveling or trying to use a snowblower, they literally had to bring uh, front end loaders down these streets over oh, about wow. a week and wow. a half period to remove the snow because you had nowhere to put it. That that was oh, a beauty. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. So, so with all this snow, sorry, Brady, I'm going to ask this question. Oh, you're good. You're um, good. All right. With, with all these snowstorms, here's the question I want to know, because you had to have been a big part of this, I would imagine, um, or certainly have to support it at this point, is the challenges. Talking about Chernobyl. Naming, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the Chernobyl Ridge. Yeah, there, yeah, there you go. Buffalo, oh, no. What what have the challenges in naming winter storms? Uh, you know, and you've probably answered this question eight hundred billion gazillion times. I just want to know what have been the challenges because you've had you're in the middle whether you were a part of that or not. I'm sure you were, but you're in the middle of that. What what have been the challenges in doing that? And and is that something that you feel now a few years later? Do you see that catching on, or or what have you witnessed, and what what were the challenges? Yeah, good questions. I'll give you a little background. When I first started at the Weather Channel five years ago, I was approached by the management um, with the question uh, and and the the information that they had looked seriously at naming uh, winter storms across the U.S. ahead of time before the storm was had already occurred. Um, this was different uh, from the way that storms would be named and ranked by other entities. Uh, some of you may be familiar with uh, work that was done by Louis Ussolini, director of the National Weather Service, and Paul Cosen, who was a winter weather expert a while ago at the Weather Channel, in developing something called the Northeast Storm Impact Scale, or NESIS. They would rank winter storms based on what had happened. This deal with the weather Meaning Channel, what? Can you explain that, meaning what had happened? They would rank the storms based on the amount of snow that occurred over a certain population and a certain area in the northeastern United States. Okay. So those are those were storms that were ranked but not named. The Weather Channel wanted to actually name storms based on a forecast of what was going to happen. And it it was a very challenging uh goal for them uh to to aspire to uh, and it was kind of handed off to me and a couple of other people to develop a way to do it. um there you go so um and which you know i'm up for the challenge so what we did is the first year we jumped into this and 
we had a committee of individuals, three of us, that would actually assess each of these storms and try to get some feeling for the type of impact these storms would have on a national scale across the U.S. And we named, I think we named something like uh, 26 or 27 storms that first winter. We went back after that first winter and we looked at all of these storms to try to get a feeling as to whether they really did produce the type of impacts we thought they would produce. To make a long story short, we calibrated these storms kind of like that MESA scale based on the population and the area that these storms would impact. And we came up with a quantitative way of naming these storms and have used it ever since. So what we do is we look at the time proven method of gauging impacts from winter storms. Those are the winter storm warnings that are put out by National Weather Service offices. And as you guys know, a storm that impacts Burlington, Vermont, is going to have a, with maybe eight inches of snow, it's going to have a lot different impact up there than it will in Atlanta, Georgia. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Um, <laughs> National sure. Weather Service winter warning criteria is developed by local offices, and it's based on latitude. So as an example, in, in Buffalo, if you get seven inches of snow in a 12-hour period, that will trigger a warning. In Atlanta, Georgia, all you have to get is two inches of snow for an entire event to trigger a warning. <laughs> so, so using that as our basis to gauge the impacts that would happen across the country, we came up with a quantitative method of either 2 million people or an area about the size of the state of Montana as being the minimum to name a winter storm. Though Either of those had to be under, under winter storm warnings to get to a point where the storm would get a name. And it was very rough for the first year and a half. In fact, when we first rolled this out, the meteorological community was just aghast at uh, the cavalier attitude the Weather Channel had for going out and deciding they were going to name these storms. And I came from NOAA. I came from the National Weather Service. Um, I was very... It was extremely difficult for me to walk that line. Um, but, you know, I gave it a chance and um, I found it interesting because the first year, um, uh, somebody from the Weather Channel, Brian Norcross, gave a talk to the broadcast meteorology community and he had everybody raise their hand if they didn't like the idea that the Weather Channel was naming storms and everybody <laughs> raised their hand. <laughs> Nobody liked that idea. Then he said, how many of you would raise your hand if the National Weather Service took this over about not liking it? And nobody raised their hand. Their answer essentially was, it's not that we don't like naming winter storms. We don't like the Weather Channel doing that. We'd like to have that handled by the government the same way that they do with hurricanes. Um and I understood that completely coming from that side. But I also worked for the government. And as I mentioned to you early on, um, it takes a long time for them to change uh, ways and, and to take on new programs. By the way, they just uh, stopped using capital letters in all of their statements. <laughs> so the deal was we were going to go ahead with it. And um, when people ask me, why does the Weather Channel do it? 
I try not to make this a cavalier thing when I say it, but we do it because we can. We're a national network that covers the entire United States. And so we've got the ability to assess that, to gauge the impacts that are going to occur, and then communicate that to our viewers. We don't want to do this alone. We'd love to hand this off and get all the rest of the weather industry, private, you know, local TV, whatever, on board with this and develop a method that everybody could use and share. One of the neatest things we do with naming winter storms is they, because they got a name, you can hashtag them. Mm -hmm. And then that becomes your one-stop shopping place for all the information for the storms. Hey, Tom, remember the first, I think the first uh, winter storm that we named that really picked up steam. Remember Nemo? Nemo. (laughs) That was the big one where I think the public got on board and people were tweeting pictures with like, blow up Nemo's in the, in the yard. I remember pictures like that. (laughs) And it was funny because people like, especially now that I've switched over to digital, um, I'm looking at Twitter and I'm looking for storm reports and people taking videos and pictures. And if you use a name, it really does make life easier. Mm -hmm. And you can, you know, like say this week, here's a good example. We have Lake effect. We have Kaylee, You know, we have different things going on. So people, it's kind of, it's a great way to distinguish between two different storms. Plus, then Kaylee's going to move pretty much across the country. And that way, everybody kind of knows, oh, this is the same thing that happened uh, in the the Sierra. This happened in the Rockies. Now it's coming through Ohio. And, and it, it, if you do hashtag it, then you you, you can have a great kind of history of the storm. You know, it's funny. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Tom. No, I, I love it for that. Go ahead, Jen. Um, I actually was one of the skeptics back in the day. I worked in a local TV station. I'm like, the Weather Channel's naming winter storms. And that was before I came to the Weather Channel. But now, like, now that it's, you know, we've been doing it for five Now that they years, pay you? They've <laughs> <laughs> <Is that true? laughs> been doing it for five years. <laughs> It's one of those things that, you know, instead of like, hey, remember that big storm like two or three years ago, you actually just can say name like Winter Storm Jonas and people mm-hmm. know exactly what you're talking about. So it's a great way so to distinguish. Who was the one who TP'd your house? I remember that, too. Like, I wasn't sure about it either. And then you had, Tom, you had this like kind of little class that you had a bunch of the Mets in and you explained the science behind it. And I had not realized how much science you were actually putting in there. You know, at first when you thought about like, Hey, let's, this thing looks big. Let's name it, give it a name. There was a lot more involved and you really kind of turned me around and I was on board with it ever since. Well, Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, Tom, who names the winter storms? So, um, The naming is done by a committee of three meteorologists at the Weather Channel. Uh, Myself, uh, Stu Ostro, Director of uh, uh, Communications and and Meteorological Content, and uh, John Erdman, John, a meteorologist who works on the digital side with Dina. Uh, All three of us have years of experience with winter weather forecasting, and um, we literally, you know, are on the phone with conference calls and emails um, (laughs) monitoring these systems as they're developing and as as the models are suggesting they're going to evolve across the U.S. It doesn't come without 
a tremendous amount of consternation. Uh, is consternation? That's the word I'm using. It's a big word. It's a big word. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. Let me get the dictionary. <laughs> okay, so so let me give you an example here. Um, one of my good friends. Say that. Um, so it's not like Bob the janitor is helping out with names. Uh, no, no, it is not. It it, <laughs> it it gets it gets pretty crazy on the phone calls sometimes. That would be a whole show in itself. Um, but what's interesting is a good friend of mine is uh, Louis Ussolini, Doctor Ussolini, who's the director of the National Weather Service. Um, he and I just geek out over winter weather and have um, all of our careers. But Louis makes a good point. Um, you know, he said to me several times, he said, well, Tom, uh, not every winter storm is this bowling ball entity of a low pressure system that moves across the United States and you can identify. Indeed, many of these storms have many different components. How, did you, how do you determine what is the storm and what is not? And that's one of the challenges that we have on this committee of three, this team, and really assessing what you call a winter storm and what part of that weather that's moving across the U.S. Um, deserves to be part of that system or that name. That's one of the biggest challenges we have. We have a number of uh, holes in our rule book that help mm -hmm. us with that. Um, so, Tom, when it comes to um, experiencing weather versus like predicting weather. I know one challenge you probably have is when you, you know, when you see a big winter storm like that, you're probably dying to get out there. Do, do the producers let you, you know, I know they let, you know, Jim and some of those other guys go out. Do you get any sort of say in whether you get to go out or not, or do they pretty much want you in the studio, don't they? Yeah. How ironic is it that you <laughs> all the way from Buffalo down to Atlanta to uh, yeah. to yeah. work winter weather. Are you kidding me? You must see me wiping drool off my face when I'm watching <laughs> uh, Cantori and Seidel. Seidel was just south of Buffalo tonight live. Um, yep. They like to keep their experts in studio, and I understand mm -hmm. why. I mean, we're there to really tell the story and explain the science behind uh, the storms. Um, I've gotten to go out a couple of times, and mm -hmm. um, I've gotten to really enjoy it. <laughs> Let me tell you something. It's hard work. Um, you think about like Seidel today was in Buffalo. He was, um, he was on air on and off for a 14 hour period um, yeah. out in a parking lot, dressed in seven <laughs> layers of clothing. Now, apart from being out there and having to work all day, there are certain things that one must do during a 14 hour period to keep the body from exploding. So, <laughs> So, oh, so mm. just the ability to to get back into a building, to get food, to do whatever um, <laughs> and to be out. Think about being out in those kind of conditions, whether it be a heavy rainstorm, a hurricane, a blizzard or whatever. I'll tell you what, these are iron men and iron women that are out there that cover these storms uh, like that. So oh, yeah. I give them a lot of credit. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Hey, you know what I say? Bring it on. You know, the, the, the worse I feel, the better. You know what I'm on? <laughs> yeah. Lay down the law, so, Tom. Just say I'm going. So, Tom, I'll tell you what, Tom. We don't, we don't get into a lot of um, current weather events on this show. Uh, we don't really kind of cover what's going on currently a whole lot. Yeah. Um, but I, I do have a question because currently there is uh, in New York, a uh, little bit of uh, Pennsylvania and even northern Ohio, a lot of lake effect snow going on currently 
And I think it, it would be interesting to find out a little bit more about what causes that, I guess, uh, what creates that, how often does that occur in those areas each season? Yeah, it's a, you know, it's a good question. And um, the snowiest populated areas to the east of the Rocky Mountains are in the Great Lakes and uh, downwind of those giant bodies of water. You know, for those that aren't familiar, the lakes are kind of like inland seas. They're gigantic. They just take Lake Erie. The, the smallest of the lakes is 225 miles long. So you've got this lake sitting there, and in the fall and early winter, the temperature of the lake may be, say, 50 degrees. That's about what it is now. And then you've got this Arctic air that comes down out of Canada, and it may be 10, 15 degrees. So you've got this really cold air moving over this warm water. And this warm water's got this, these air parcels that come off of it that are nice and warm. And they get into that cold air and they say, damn, I'm buoyant. I'm just going to keep rising, here, keep rising, here, keep rising. So you get all of these updrafts that develop with all this moisture that rises off the lake. And of course, when it gets to a certain point in the atmosphere, it cools down, that moisture condenses out into the form of some type of precipitation. And it's generally cold enough to form uh, snow. So that's how it forms. It's pretty much that process. And then the wind direction takes that moisture and channels it somewhere downstream. And that's how you get these different types of bands of snow. So it's that temperature difference that brings heat and moisture, produces the snow, and then the winds tell you where that band is going to set up. And what's really neat, if you can keep the wind out of one direction for a long period of time, that 10 or 15 mile wide band may sit there and put down five feet of snow. And if you drive 20 miles on either side of it, you can get to green grass. It's just, it's <laughs> wild. It's absolutely that, those wild. Are the storms that, uh, sorry, Ray, those are the storms where like people say, oh, um, you guys messed it up completely. I'm like, did you go five miles north? (laughs) And that was always the challenge in Buffalo. um, Because think about it this way. If you forecast the band over the north side of the city of Buffalo and you forecast a foot of snow, well, if the band is off, the wind direction's off by 10 degrees, that band is going to be about 10 to 15 miles south of where it was. So you not only messed up for these people because you told them you were going to get a foot of snow and they get nothing, but all these people down there that you forecast no snow for, they're getting the foot of snow. So it's an extreme challenge. And I know in the in the upstate New York, people are used to understanding the way we would communicate in our warnings how these snow bands would develop and approximately where they would be. So a person might understand that on the north side of Buffalo, as an example, uh, the heavy snow band would develop and later that night it would drop southward into what we refer to as the South Towns. Everybody has an idea that, okay, got a big band of snow that's going to be going on. I need to listen very carefully in case they are off by a little bit because we would put out a lot of updates on that. So it can be a huge challenge for sure. Yeah. I think it's a huge challenge Um, just because of precip type. Like you, you could be off like a few degrees, you're getting ice or you're getting snow. A few degrees can make a difference in how much snow. I mean, I think it's the hardest, hardest thing to forecast. 
Yeah, winter weather, um, and I've talked to other experts at the Weather Channel, the hurricane expert, Mm -hmm. uh, Michael Lowry, (laughs) Dr. Greg Forbes, Mm -hmm. a severe weather expert. They have their own issues with forecasting their type of weather, but they say to me, boy, I don't know how you do it. It has Mm -hmm. got to be almost impossible to forecast what we call P-type or precipitation type. Most of these big storms, you know, you're talking about Columbus, maybe next week, Columbus, maybe they're going to be in rain. They're not going to get snow. That idea of different types of precipitation and winter weather can make or break a forecast. And of course, the precipitation forms up above you. So this column of air that's sitting above you, the models have some ideas to what the temperature profile is going to be. But if it's off by just one or two degrees, it can mean the whole world the difference between rain versus snow. And that as well is a huge forecast challenge. That's a little teaser to our discussion topic. I don't want to give everything away right now, right? But okay. uh, Maz, did you have a question for Tom? Yeah. Yes. Or maybe not, Mr. Roboto. Yeah, go ahead, Jen. Um, so basically, Tom, because the difficulty of forecasting, you know, uh, precipitation types and lake effect snow, is that what uh, motivated you to create Buff Kit or the Buffalo Toolkit? Oh, okay. So for those of you who may not be aware, um, Buff Kit is uh, a toolkit that is used by operational forecasters around the country, both the U.S. and Canada. In fact, they use it around the world. Um, And it was a homegrown uh, software toolkit that was developed at the Buffalo National Weather Service office. Um, It is a tremendous tool for helping forecasters dissect the weather, both in a time fashion and in a fashion of what the the temporal changes are in the atmosphere at very high resolution. I was, I'll call myself, especially because of my age, I'll call myself the grandfather of that because I started the the precursor to what is out there now, Buff Kit. Um, I did some of the original work and then this amazing brain, of an individual, great friend of mine. His name is Ed Murray. He is now the director of the Warning and Decision Training Branch for the National Weather Service out in Oklahoma. Ed came into our office as the first science officer and was a computer genius. And um, his skills allowed us to develop BuffKit over a series of several months uh, uh, to roll it out then um, for forecast offices. And many of you know about that tool. It's an amazing tool. We learned about it in school. I read your papers in school. It's great. It's awesome. <laughs> it's fantastic. Uh-oh. And Ed, Ed was the, uh, he's the guy you give all the credit to. It's awesome. All right. So, so let, let's, I want to get into a little bit of your hobby, Tom, because one of the things that I've, I've really been amazed about only because you introduced it to us is your uh, photography and photographing snowflakes. And I, I think that is amazing. I looked at your website. So do me a favor. First off, tell our listeners about your website, but explain how do you do that? <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> the website goes under the eclectic little name, buffaloflakes.com. Um, and it's not it's to be the, confused with frosted flakes, right? That is correct. Which, by the way, is the favorite breakfast of any winter weather expert. Um, absolutely. <laughs> But um, I've always enjoyed photography, and um, I'm not a professional by any means. Uh, but 
I had read a lot of the work of a guy by the name of Snowflake Bentley, uh, a photographer who was a farmer that lived in Vermont back in the 1800s and took up this um, old one of their the first cameras and actually photographed snowflakes with this camera. I found it fascinating. So, you know, as growing up, I would look at these snowflakes when they would land on the black fur of my Labrador retriever dog. Oh my. <laughs> <laughs> because I, it provided good contrast and good insulation. And I, I saw these amazing uh, structures that I thought were only these drawings in books. And it took a few years to finally get some technology together so I could photograph them at a scale where I could see them. So I got a good friend of mine get, uh, lent me uh, an old microscope, and um, I took a point-and-shoot camera, I read about how the professionals do this online, but I didn't have the money to spend that kind of money on doing this. So I went out and bought a dollar and 60 cents worth of plumbing parts and attached this point and shoot camera to a microscope. And then what I would do is I would go out at night and take last slides and sit down um, on a piece of black felt in a box and I'd wait for the snowflakes to come down and collect these bring them in, put them under the microscope, make sure I didn't breathe because they would disappear. <laughs> and then I would, I would literally photograph them with my point-and-shoot camera. And um, I was amazed at the results I was getting. What I've got on my site is fun stuff. And for the resources I put into this, I thought it did pretty well. If you go online these days and go to um, uh, like websites like snowcrystals.com, Snowcrystals.com is a website that's maintained by Dr. Ken Liebrecht uh, from uh, Caltech. He's a nuclear crystal physicist. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, but he's got this multi-thousand-dollar system uh, to take these unbelievable photographs of snowflakes. And if you go online, there are a lot of other individuals that are doing it these days. You would be amazed. If you want to do it yourself, one of the first ways to do this is just get outside on a night when not these big flakes are coming down because those are actually a, a, a combination of hundreds of snow crystals. You get outside on a night when it's cold, when the air is almost still, so the flakes will come down, and you get a nice light snow coming down with these tiny flakes. Set a piece of black felt down and get out a magnifying glass or anything like that and again, don't breathe on them, but begin to look at what is falling onto that black felt, and you will be amazed. That's so cool. That's yeah, awesome. That is awesome, and that's that's definitely a great a great website. So, um, how how can listeners follow you on social media or contact you, Tom? <laughs> um, <laughs> so, Jen, you might have to help me with this. I'm on Facebook. <laughs> um, I'm on Facebook through the Weather Channel. Um, mm -hmm. It's what TWC at Tom Nessel or Jenel uh, check that I'm looking it up right now. <laughs> <laughs> but he's um, great on Facebook. Social TWC media, you know, Tom it's hard. TW, at TWC Tom Nizzle. Okay, yeah. At TWC Tom Nizzle. And um, uh, I have a lot of fun on my, on my Facebook page. I put geek out stuff on there all the time. So if you're really bored, you, you can come to that and check it out. <laughs> no, there's a lot of fun things on there. So, and I'm on Twitter as well. Yes. Um, if you want to follow me there, I guess it's at Tom Nizzle. 
uh, for Twitter. Yeah, well, that's simple. Um, yeah, those are easy ones. <laughs> um, the name is a little difficult to spell, so <laughs> it's uh, N-I-Z-I-O-L. That's my last name. Very good. So. All right. Well, hey, it's time for our lightning round, uh, which is it's a round of yes. questions for our guests. And okay. in honor of Tom's published most embarrassing moment, which apparently <laughs> had something to do with Al Roker and oh. either introducing you or commenting about your your likeness to Dr. Bunsen Honeydew. There you go. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, we are going to play tonight. We're playing Muppet or not a Muppet. That's oh, what we're playing. Okay. Uh, that's what we're playing tonight. So. I've got, uh, basically what I'm going to do, Tom, is I'm going to rattle off a number of names. And what you have to do is just say Muppet or not a Muppet. Okay? Uh, okay. Uh, we're going to rip through these. Are you ready? All right. I'm ready to Here go. We go. We're ready. All right. Here we go. Uh, number one, Beaker. Muppet. Woo! All right. Uh, number two, Sweetums. Muppet. That is a Muppet. Oh, All right. Bingo. I don't think so. You there got it, Tom. Yeah. Next one is Dead Tom. Unfortunately, that is a Muppet. Oh, you what? Your, um, Dead you need to Tom? Watch your, uh, oh, Treasure I've never heard of that. Treasure yeah, Island. I've never heard of that either. Uh, number four, Dopey. Uh, nah, he was one of Snow White's uh, dwarfs. Yeah, wasn't he a seven say, dwarfs? No. You're correct. Not a Muppet. All right, next one. Wicket. Wicket. I got to say no. I don't remember that either. You're correct. Not uh, not a Muppet. Um, I didn't ding you on the last one, did I? But yeah, Uh, Wicket's not a Muppet. He was an Ewok. Um, (laughs) Rolf. Rolf. Rolf? Yeah, yeah. He was a Muppet. He was a Muppet. Yep, a dog. All right, next one. Wow. Um, Amazing Mumford. The amazing Mumford. No. Uh, he was a Muppet. He was yes. a Muppet. Oh, 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 oh. All right, next one. Yeah. Gandalf the Grey. Uh, no, I don't think so. No, not a Muppet. All right, correct. He, he was a wizard in <laughs> yeah. the Rings. Yeah. Uh, all right, next one. Biff. <laughs> Biff. Nah, I think he was. He was yeah. a Muppet. Yeah. Right. Wow. Goodness. Uh, yeah. Sesame Street, like garbage uh, collector yeah. or something. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, next one, Captain Breakfast. Mm, no, no, I don't think so. No, not a Muppet. All right, Captain Breakfast was a Muppet. Oh. Uh, I had never heard of him, so wow. that was kind of a trick question, but he truly was a Muppet. All right, next one, Mario. Well, Mario was, uh, I know he had brothers. Uh, <laughs> now, I, I, again, I'm going to say, I'm going to go Mario. no on that. No uh, one correct. Mario. Mario was not a Muppet. He was a video game. Yeah, uh, it's like, <laughs> thank you. Next one, Yoda. <laughs> oh, my God. Yoda, no, no, not a Muppet. Uh, correct. He's, he's, he was not a Muppet, but that's questionable because he was puppeteered by Frank True. Oz. Who was yeah. a Muppet True. puppeteer, but no, he was oh, not a Muppet. Some All right, trivia cool. for you. Yeah, a little bit. Guy Smiley. Guy Smiley. Gosh, I I, I got to go no on that as well. 
Uh, he was a Muppet. It's gone. Yeah. Oh, my. Not he good. was a Sesame, uh, Sesame Street game show host. Game show, yes. All right, next oh. one. Crash, okay. Crash Bandicoot. I got to go no on that one, too, only because I don't. Uh, you, you are correct. He, he was a video game. Okay. All right, next one. Bert and Ernie. Well, of course, Bert and Ernie. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Waldorf and Statler. Oh, yeah, the two old timers. I would yeah. know them from anywhere. All right. <laughs> Abbott and Costello. <laughs> Ah, yeah. Who's out first? I don't believe so. I'm old enough to remember them. <laughs> All right. Lou, Lou Zealand. Lou Zealand. Lou Zealand. He comes from down under, I'm thinking. Um, <laughs> I'm going to go no. You're incorrect. He, he yeah. was, Lou Zealand was the boomerang fish thrower. Oh, really? Wow. Boomerang wow. fish thrower. I throw it. Oh, there you go. Right yeah. <laughs> where where does right. the fish come in? What? Oh, yeah, he was know. a fish? evil Knievel. Oh, yeah. Evil Knievel, Tom. Muppet or not a Muppet? <laughs> I'm not a Muppet. <laughs> Very good. All right. The Electric Mayhem. Boy, was that the – I want to say that might have been the the group. That Yeah, I think that was a group of guys that played. Yes. yes. You are correct. Nice. They were Muppets. Oh, nice. right. The Meat Puppets. <laughs> No, a, meat a, meat, a meat puppet. This, this sounds like a, a badly rated movie. Um, yes. yeah. I'm going to go. <laughs> I'm going to go no on this one. You, oh, you're man. correct. Now they are a band, uh, and they're actually one of my favorite bands. It still has um, all their albums. The Meat Puppet. Yeah. The Meat Puppets. Oh, oh their music cannot be good. That music. It was kind be- of a post. Are they vegetarians? Post punk. <laughs> Uh, kind of little country mixed in. It's really an interesting group. Actually, Brady, I saw them up in Columbus. I think last year they played up in Columbus. So I was right. probably there. Uh, last four. We're down to our last four. Wow. Frodo, Muppet or not a Muppet? <laughs> I'm not touching that one either. Uh, I'm going to go no. I'm going no. Uh, you're correct. correct. He, he was a Hobbit, not a Muppet. Uh, Frank the Tank. <laughs> Frank the Tank. Wow. I'm going to know on that, too. You're correct. That was Will Ferrell in old school. Oh, Uh, gosh. uh, Last two, Flying Zucchini Brothers. The Flying Zucchini Brothers. Uh, I don't think they were Muppets. No. Uh, They were Muppets. The Flying Zucchini Brothers were an acrobatic act. Uh, and last, <laughs> last, uh, Pepe the Prawn. Pepe the boy, he just sounds like he'd be a Muppet. Oh, I'm gonna go with it. Yeah, yeah. You did. All right. good job. Nice. Pepe the Prawn was, was a Muppet. You are correct. So, uh, well done. That was wow. actually pretty good, Tom. I was, I was pretty impressed yeah. with that. So, I, uh, I love the Muppets. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, yeah, I appreciate Thanks for playing along with us. That's always fun to do a little, uh, little segment like that but we're going to go ahead and take a quick break for brady storm school and when we get back uh we're going to come back everyone and try and figure out why forecasters just are having a struggle trying to come up with a snowfall consensus this is storm school where together we'll take an in-depth look into certain weather phenomenon why they happen, 
where they happen, what causes them. Some topics we'll cover will things you might have never heard before or things you've heard a lot. But welcome to Storm School. Class yeah. is in session. Hello once again, guys. This is Storm School. I'm Brady. And today we're going to be talking about freezing rain. Now this is going to be the start of our multi-part series where we go through some of the wintry precipitation and winter storm stuff um, as we get into you know, winter. It's officially December now. Official meteorological winter has begun. So winter storms are going to start to come down the pipe in the northeast to the midwest, even possibly even the deep south. Um, as we get into January and February, <clears throat> so you could be dealing with something like this. So let's talk about freezing rain. So what exactly is freezing rain? Let's start with what exactly is precipitation and where it exactly falls from. So when you have a cloud of water vapor um, that's up in the air, it forms basically from condensation. Um, in the winter times, and oftentimes even in the summer times, if the cloud can get high enough, but mostly in the winter, um, the, the water vapor within the cloud will actually be frozen in as ice crystals. Um, you know, formerly, they're not necessarily snowflakes yet. They're, they're more ice crystals. Um, and then it, once they get heavy enough, they get, you know, they get um, basically pick up more water vapor as that water vapor rises in the cloud and then condenses on those ice crystals and then freezes because of that freezing level. But that's another topic entirely. Um, talking about how you know a snowflake would form. That's a very complicated process. We won't get into that now. So just know the ice crystal forms, and then once it gets heavy enough, it starts to fall. And as it's falling, um, it, it will continue to pick up water vapor and get bigger and continue falling. And um, it, it sometimes, in oftentimes in winter storms, there's a warm, what's called like a warm sector. There's a warm front. Um, so there's actually be warm air um, riding up over top of cold air into the atmosphere. So oftentimes that ice crystal, as it's falling through the atmosphere, will actually encounter warm air, warmer air, which can sometimes be above freezing. <clears throat> so then what will happen is um, that, depending on how deep that warm air layer is aloft, and aloft just means high up, you know, above the surface, that will, that will you know, that'll change the difference between it being snow, it being rain, or it being freezing rain. So for freezing rain, you have the ice crystals will fall, they'll encounter a layer of warmer air, warmer than 32 degrees, and then it'll actually melt it. It'll melt the ice crystal into water vapor. Or not water vapor, it'll melt the ice crystal into liquid water. And then that liquid water will continue falling actually as a raindrop. Um, and sometimes it's super cool. Sometimes the, uh, the actual temperature of the raindrop is below 32, but it still doesn't freeze because it's falling so fast. Um, and it doesn't have time. So as it's falling, it continues to fall. But then near the ground where the freezing rain comes in is it actually encounters another layer of air that's below 32 degrees Celsius. Or 32 degrees Fahrenheit, sorry, 0 degrees Celsius. So then um, depending on how deep that layer is, that actually determines whether that precipitation, that rain, refreezes into sleet or just free, hits the ground and freezes on contact as freezing rain. If you have a very thin freezing layer near the ground, say, you know, couple, you know, maybe 10, 20, 30 meters, uh, maybe 40 meters, um, maybe even greater than that, 
where the layer is below freezing, where the temperature of that layer is below freezing, you'll probably get freezing rain. So what will happen is the rain will fall to the ground. It'll still fall as rain, but then it'll hit the ground and freeze on contact because it's below 32 degrees Fahrenheit, the temperature is. And then <clears throat> the different scenarios where you get sleet, where the the freezing layer, where the you know the ice crystals fall, they hit the warm layer, they melt, but then they encounter a freezing layer that's deeper than free, the freezing rain layer that we had before. It's deeper than that. So <clears throat> the water vapor actually has more time to refreeze, and or the liquid water, sorry, has more time to refreeze. It refreezes before it hits the ground, and then it falls as these ice pellets. And that is called sleet. Um, so basically that's the difference between freezing rain and sleet. Freezing rain can cause some real havoc. Freezing rain actually is worse usually because... It's a lot harder to get off the road. Sleet, you can just kind of push aside, and it doesn't really affect traction. But freezing, um, but freezing rain can be disastrous um, to power lines, to the roads, um, for driving. It can be very hard to remove, especially if a bit, a, you know, a large cold air mass filters in behind it. So hopefully that gave you some more input on freezing rain. I touched on sleet a little bit as well. So uh, you know that was really fun. Let's get back to the podcast. All right, so welcome back. Uh, so we, we've got Tom with us here tonight, and so we, we thought it'd be fun to kind of discuss winter storm snowfall forecasting and really talk a little bit about how specific should the media get or how specific can they be. And so what I, I first wanted to do is bring up an article um, in uh, NJ.com. It's by Len Melisurgo, and it's called Here's What Five Forecasters Are Saying About the Expected Weekend Storm. Now, I'm not going to give you the date yet of this storm, but I'm going to talk a little bit, as the article does, uh, talk about this upcoming weekend storm uh, that's that was up in the Northeast. So he basically went on to, the whole premise of the article was the fact that here's five major for weather forecasting entities, and all of them are kind of coming up with some different solutions. And then I'm going to tell you what the actual result was and, and the storm and everything else. So this upcoming uh, nor'easter, basically, so it was up in the northeast, National Weather Service. So basically what we talked a little bit in the article about is the National Weather Service, uh, at, at least at the time, and they may now too as well, but didn't really go out on a limb too much in talking about Snowfall amounts, they talk just mostly about uh, the fact, he says here, National Weather Service says, there's a potential for substantial precipitation, both snow and rain, gusty winds could cause additional issues with blowing and drifting, uh, potential exists for mile per hour gusts along the coast, um, blah, 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 blah. So they didn't get a whole lot into it uh, as far as snowfall amounts. AccuWeather, uh, which is up in State College, Pennsylvania, uh, where, of course, Brady did his internship, as everybody probably knows, unless you're listening for the first time. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they basically yeah. predicted, they were predicting about 18 to 24 inches uh, in northwestern New Jersey and the Lehigh Valley region, and, of course, some of the other regions less than that, but they were forecasting up to 18 to 24 inches. Um, the Weather Channel, uh, and you know what, I, I take that back. AccuWeather, I was, I was reading ahead, AccuWeather, he said, was stating roughly about 6 to 12 inches of snow. And in the hardest hit areas, if the rain 
developed to snow maybe one to two feet. Okay, it was the Weather Channel predicting eight to twenty-four inches. Weather Works, a private weather consulting firm, uh, was was on the line predicting that the weekend storm could be a blizzard. They weren't predicting any snowfall amounts. Um, they could be the blizzard of of this particular year. I won't give the year yet. And the fifth one they had was the Eastern PA Weather Authority, uh, who on Monday before the event was forecasting roughly 18 to 24 inches of snow. Okay. So different levels. Some were forecasting snowfall amounts. Some weren't. Uh, Anybody want to guess what the storm was? Which storm? Jonas? It was. Yeah, so yeah. this was Winter Storm Jonas, otherwise also known as Snowzilla. <laughs> January 22nd to the 24th of this year of 2016, uh, where there was up to three feet of snow in the mid-Atlantic and northeast area. So the, the question obviously comes, the challenges, and there's a perfect example of forecasting snowfall amounts and really also trying to ask the question, does location factor into early prediction? In the, the question about location, meaning if your forecast entity is located? Uh, no, location-wise, as far as where are, where are you located where this storm is hitting, does that create some of the challenge? And we talked a little bit about that when we were talking with you earlier, Tom, but maybe you can... Give us your two cents. It's such a uh, it's such a challenge all the way around. There are so many factors that come into play um, when you are trying to predict what that atmosphere above you is going to be like, its temperature structure, and how these massive storms actually evolve. Um, trying to forecast, in my mind, snowfall amounts more than three days into the future to begin with, I think can oftentimes be a futile task. But people need to have that information to plan. And in this day and age, when you're running a school system or you've got to bring in salt and extra crews for uh, clearing operations, you want to have some ideas to maybe what are the odds that we're going to have a big storm. And to me, that's a real important factor that we're starting to look into now in how to communicate the potential for a snowstorm for an area. And that is something we refer to as um, probability forecasting. So if I told you, well, we're looking at this, I can't give you an actual amount, but there's an 80% chance that we're going to get over a foot of snow. And oh, by the way, there's a 20% chance we're going to get only two or three inches. It gives people a maybe a better idea that, well, Eight out of 10 times, I'm going to get hit big. But you know, there are two out of 10 times and we're not going to see anything out of this. This idea of doing probability forecasting and being able to communicate and educate the public to that is um, is something that a lot of forecasters and scientists are talking about these days. So I hope I didn't jump the gun here on explaining that, but forecasting snowfall is a can be an extremely inaccurate science um so is that where they start to use terminology as forecasters instead of coming down to numbers they would say this could be a nuisance snow 
or a shovelable snow or a plowable snow where it's a little bit more but still not too quantitative? That's another nice way to to describe that because it's a way that a lot of people who deal with this on a daily basis can assess the impacts. Shovelable snow, oh boy. That means it's <laughs> going to be tough to get the car out of the driveway. Um, I'm going to have to take more time to get the driveway shoveled. It's definitely going to take time to get to work. The parking lot may not be cleared. It kind of puts all that into someone's mind. So that's terminology, at least, that can give some people an idea as to what the impact is going to be. Um, we love to throw around numbers a lot, so um, but not everybody kind of equates all of these numbers in their minds. So that's another good way to maybe to communicate or assess impacts. Yeah, Tom, and I think I think that's probably the biggest challenge because you can be the best forecaster, but if, if you can't communicate your forecast in a way that makes sense, because the people, you know, most people in, in public or at least, you know, a decent amount of them still think, you know, they hear chance and they're like, oh, meteorologist, you don't know what you're, you know, you say it's going to be 50 percent. So one thing's going to happen. You don't really know what's going to happen. So I think it's it's very important that we communicate it in a very effective way. And, and I think people on social media, you know, I actually did a story for this for our uh, local newspaper um, or our local TV station, The Lantern. Um, all these people on Twitter that have access to these models now, they, they'll post these, you know, yes. I remember last year. Um, there was someone on Twitter that posted a 15-day GFS <laughs> model, and it showed Columbus getting like 32 inches of snow oh, in, like, in like 48 hours. And they and right next to it, they had a picture of a train bowling through like five feet of snow, <laughs> saying, "We're you know we're all going to die." And and they were like sort of serious, and they had uh, you know a couple thousand followers on Twitter. And so I think that's a big part. You know, big part of that problem is is because you can't just not allow these people to communicate that to the public, but you have to somehow, you know, make the accredited institutions, you know, be able to have more input than some of these other, you know, other people on Twitter that just don't know what they're doing. And well, here comes the train. I hear it in the background. <laughs> yeah, so that's, yep. that's in my neighborhood. I put, put that in as a sound effect. <laughs> Perfect. You hit on a great point there, and I, I have to touch on this one, too, because you mentioned this forecast that comes out from this Twitter person. We don't know who that person is. They've got like 2,000 followers. Mm -hmm. Well, if you dig into it a little more, he's 11 years old. Yes. <laughs> yep. Yep. You're right. And he's working out of his parents' basement. And the, the, the young, the, this young forecaster um, extraordinaire who wants to go to school and learn about weather and meteorology is grabbing these model maps from 15 days out yeah. and putting them out there like it's some PhD uh, who's doing this. So you're right, especially in today's social media world, there's all kinds. You can get any forecast you want. At 300 hours on the GFS, there's always a blizzard. Yep. Um, uh, so, so that's very important as well. Uh, you know, in naming winter storms across the United States um, and learning about all the, oh, my God, the challenges that you have in a place like Denver or in, in um, Boston or in D.C. or you, you go on and on with this. Um, we have to be very, very careful, especially meteorologists, in in wish casting or yeah. <laughs> or 
Oh man, it it it. We've had three model runs now that show that there's going to be a storm five days out. Let's tell people how much they're going to get. We have to be really careful about that um, because, as you all know, the farther out in time you get, the more uncertainty you're going to get typically in forecast. Now, there are some weather patterns that will develop a, forecast, uh, develop a weather system that, um, that the models can latch onto and they have very good success with. And in some cases, we can forecast with pretty good accuracy three, four days out how much snow is going to fall in an area. But in most of the cases, that's very difficult to do. In the same storm, we could forecast with very good accuracy what part of that storm may get a lot of snow, but in another part of the storm where the precipitation type may be changing, there's complete uncertainty. So um, so I, I take us back to this probability forecasting that we look at, the probability that something is going to occur. And running a whole bunch of computer models, we refer to as ensemble model forecasting, where we have a whole bunch of members of a team that start out with just little different initial conditions. They use little different microphysics and that in the models. And we run these time and time again, and we develop a consensus among these models. We then can come up with a kind of a probability of the different odds we have to an area getting a certain type of precipitation or a certain amount of snow. And that's what a lot of researchers are looking at these days and um, that I know in the National Weather Service, they're looking at this very seriously. Jen, Jen, what can you, from a social media standpoint, uh, in all of this? Because that, I mean, we haven't gotten into that, right? We're just talking about the challenges that multiple weather entities are having. And then you throw in that social media aspect. Well, and that's the, the problem. Nowadays, it seems like everyone has access to, you know, computer models, all the different computer models. And back in the day, I don't think that was the case. And we've got a lot of big weather geeks and having social a place where you can just post and, and do whatever you want. A lot of people and they're uneducated, but they're excited. They think they may know what they're looking at and they'll post something like that, like 14, 15 days out. And they don't even understand what they're looking at. And they post it and they scare everyone. And some of them actually have a decent amount of followers. And it's one thing for everybody to know that they need to trust uh, their source of weather information. They got to be able to, you know, look in depth at that person that's providing that information and actually see who that is. Is that 11 year old boy that's actually in his <laughs> parents' basement? Or is it, a, you know, accredited meteorologist that actually has a degree? And most meteorologists on social will say they're an actual meteorologist, what school they went to, that sort of a thing. They'll have their credentials on there. So it's something to double check. If you see something wild like that, make sure that you just check the source. The problem is if someone posts something like that, it freaks people out and it goes like viral. I know some Facebook posts have gone viral like that. And it's our job and it makes it very difficult for us to have to be like, okay, that's not true. Calm people down. That's not going to happen. So it, unfortunately, it's kind of like a double-edged sword. Social media is great. It's a great way to reach people and give the forecast, but you've got other people on there who aren't meteorologists giving the forecast too. So the best thing to do is make sure you know the person you're getting the information from and it's a trusted source, whether it's a 
network, a local TV station, an individual meteorologist, just make sure you know they're a accredited person. Well, yeah, and, and Jen, I'll, here's didn't the least. Go ahead, Phil. Well, I was going to ask Maz, and I think Maz is going to jump in there too, but I'm curious, Maz, just from a local forecasting standpoint, with the experience you've got, you know, in, in a local what what are the what are the pros and cons with being able to and and the rest of you can kick in too from from a national standpoint trying to forecast for local uh snowfall amounts well the one plus is obviously being able to pronounce the names of towns better than on a national <laughs> level just saying but um <laughs> but, <you're, laughs> but you know i would say like like tom i would never ever in my wildest ever go up against him forecasting for buffalo because he is probably the greatest expert in the world because he's lived there, he's forecast there, he's worked there, he's done the science there. So there's something to be said about someone who's been in a localized area for a long time. All right. Um, but that being said, I, I can't turn the channel off. I love it. I love it. I love watching you guys. You're awesome. Thanks. Thanks. And that'll be $10. <laughs> at the weather channel it can be hard to forecast i think locally um because a lot of local meteorologists have been there you know 10 15 20 years or more and they know the area and the weather systems and how it impacts them you know their microclimates and all that um but at the weather channel we have so many people there that are from so many different areas and know those little things in those different regions little small towns and that does help us out a lot whether it's an on-camera meteorologist or a meteorologist behind the scenes but still sometimes we don't know some of the really you know intricate you know really really small microclimates right right i agree but i do think there's something you said too about the weather channel because you know people aren't you know say the national weather service were to put on you know start their own local tv station I can guarantee you a lot more people would still want to watch the Weather Channel. So even though some of these forecasters have some of these nuances of these local networks, people might never, ever, you know, hear about them because these weather, you know, meteorologists might not have a chance to communicate them. So that's, you know, one thing that the Weather Channel has is they can attract a bigger audience, you know, because I know my, none of my friends are ever going to watch, you know, a, a local weather cast from a, a local meteorologist or a national weather service meteorologist that's some you know something that the weather channel has going for them is they can actually attract a bigger audience to that platform that's well and I'll, I'll say this last and i'll throw this out uh to everybody it's kind of the last question but what uh, i guess what two things with this question number one is with the current prediction abilities that we have What's the best? What's the best solution? Is it going to this probability uh, amount scenario? Is that the best solution? Number two is what's the science that we're missing without getting too sciency? What's the you know what are we missing that's going to allow us to maybe better predict snowfall amounts? I would say the one thing about the probability is if it's more than say forty eight hours maybe stick with more probabilities and then within 48 hours and you start to try to give totals. Good. I, mean, I like that. That's kind of what we've been trying to do lately, at least even with on the lift. Um, you know, I, I tell you, there's days I remember being in a room with like 20 minutes looking at a storm 
and every model was different. The Euro was different. The GFS was different. The RPM was a little different. Like all these, and, and I was like, thank God it is not up to me to make this decision because I just <laughs> need to throw my hands up yeah. and go, I just, I don't know. And um, I remember because it was one of those big snowstorms, there was a lot of ice involved. And once you get ice, you're shutting down cities. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I think it's really tough. What, yeah. So what, what are we missing? What, what's, <clears throat> is there something from a scientific standpoint that will, that if we had more of this or whatever it is, it's going to allow us to better forecast snowfall amounts. I mean, do we know what that is? We have we have models, maybe higher resolution. I mean, they're getting better all the time. They're getting more high res all the time. I mean, it's just the tracks sometimes, though. I mean, if yeah. a track of a storm, I mean, even by like 20, 30 miles or less, can really impact, especially like the backside of a storm and mm-hmm. you know the transition zone. I mean it can be so difficult sometimes. I mean, you know, I think Tom talked about this before, like, you know, one area is going to get pounded. They're definitely going to get, you know, a set amount of snow, but it's the one that they could get sleet, freezing rain. Yeah. You, know, you don't know exactly where the, the storm's going to track. It's difficult. I think it's just like Dina said, high resolution models, you know, our, our tools, you know, we need more improvement on that. But I like what um, Gina said about the probabilities. I think it's smart, you know, up until about two days ahead of time, do the probability forecasting and then start, you know, putting out totals. Well, yeah, and I think like, well, and like Tom, yeah, go ahead, Mass. I was just going to say, and I, and I think like everything, it's just, and I don't mean just experience of a person. I mean, I've watched the Weather Channel from like, day one when it just like when mtv came out initially (laughs) you know i mean i watch the weather channel has gotten so good at what it does that you know what people will yeah they'll still watch their local guys but they're always going to turn i believe to the weather channel to see what's really going on yeah and i and and truthfully matt you know maz i'll be honest to to our listeners you know he's he's speaking from the heart i know we've got three weather channel people on tonight but but he's he's speaking from the heart when he says that and and i believe him as well brady what what were you gonna add well and i think phil just like tom was talking about earlier you know probability is the is the future of forecasting and ensembles and that's where all the research being done and you know if you really look at what is going to give you the most accurate information. It's going to be looking at the ensembles. Cause like Tom said, you know, these it's taking one model and it's running it 52 different ways with 52 different initial mm-hmm. conditions. And that is how you can forecast more, you know, most accurately. You don't just take one model and say, Hey, that looks good for me. You know, I want snow and I think this is going to happen. So that's really why I think the future of forecasting is definitely going towards probabilities. And it already is, but that's really how you're going to make the most forecast you know the most accurate forecast and also you know i think for improving these forecasts and models you just need more data we need we need to continue investing because that's you know if we had a sensor in every meter in the atmosphere we would be able to predict weather a lot easier because we'd have much much more data but of course that's not you know feasible so we have to find other ways to get data in in you know convenient ways that we can collect it and process it. Um, but that's how we're going to move forward in, in processing stuff. More yeah. Accurate. Cause didn't NASA just launch another satellite. I Those mean, are. yeah. Yep. So yep. I mean, that's yep. smart. 
And that's going to improve. I mean, that's going to improve it a lot, you know. And also understand the fact that if, if you haven't talked about this already, um, uh, don't poo-poo the idea of just how far we've come with computer modeling and how much more accurate our forecasts are uh, overall, uh, even in the last decade here. I mean, I go back through a long career and to see uh, just how much better the models are able to simulate the atmosphere and uh, how much more accurately we can predict going out in time. Uh, it, it really amazes me. Yes, we've got a long way to go, but um, we've come a long way as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's true. And I, I think it's easy for people to, to forget that, you know, this we've got satellites and this stuff's got to go to space and back. And, you know, we, we got we to gotta realize what we've accomplished and, and what yeah. we've done. But we, we want, uh, we listeners, we want you guys to tell us what you think. Uh, give us your feedback on, you know, where, where what we what the media should be doing when it comes to snowfall forecast amounts and uh, what, what you think is needed. You can comment by email at questions at stormfrontfreaks.com. Or you can comment on our Facebook page uh, at Stormfront Freaks or Twitter, which is at Stormfront Freak without the S. Uh, But we'll always, as we do, share some of the responses we get on our next show. So we're going to go ahead and take another break. uh, And we're going to cover details on how you can win our $99 Red Cross emergency preparation kit. Um, That Those of you watching us on Stormfront Freaks Raw... This is it, packed full of all kinds of uh, stuff, including a uh, hand crank weather radio, Eaton weather radio. Um, and a whistle, Phil. And a whistle as well. And a whistle. <laughs> oh, that's right. uh, watch episode 14 if you want to see the whistle. Uh, so go, we'll fill you in on that. We'll get that out to you just in time for Christmas. And when we come back, we'll share our weather fools and our WX resources. Hey, this is Brian Davidson from Weather Underground on the Weather Channel, and you're listening to Stormfront Freaks Podcast. All right, folks, it's contest time here at the Stormfront Freaks. Your opportunity to win a Red Cross Deluxe Emergency Kit that comes with an Eaton uh, Emergency Weather Radio, as featured here on Episode 14 of the Stormfront Freaks. To enter this contest, you need to do one of two things. Either go to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash stormfrontfreaks, find the post about the contest, like us on Facebook, and then share that post with all of your friends. You do those two things, you will get entered to win. Or you can go to our Twitter page at twitter.com slash stormfrontfreak, and again, find the tweet that tells about the contest. Make sure you follow us on Twitter and then retweet that contest message, and that will also get you entered to win. Make sure you hurry, because it ends December 14th. On December 15th on our show, we will select the winner of the Red Cross Deluxe Emergency Kit and the Eaton Emergency Weather Radio. If this was all a little bit confusing, just go to our webpage, stormfrontfreaks.com, and you'll find all the details there. Good luck, and now back to the podcast. All right. Well, welcome back. Uh, we're going to hit our uh, Weather Fools. Brady, lead us through that, brother. All right, guys. It's time for everyone's favorite part of the podcast. So Weather Fools where we talk about some things that some people might have done that's a little silly when it comes to weather in the past week or two. You know, they might have done something um, kind of silly. Um, Phil, let's start with you. What was your Weather Fool for this week? All right, so so uh, my weather fool for the week, um, and and this really could apply to 
to any winter storm, but you know, just most recently we had a blizzard go through uh, North Dakota and Minnesota. And uh, Reed Timmer on Twitter, uh, Reed actually is going to be a guest of ours in the spring. Um, Reed just posted a, a picture that those of those of you watching on Stormfront Freaks Raw will be able to see this. Uh, but he posted vehicles getting towed out of the road in Alexandria, Minnesota, at Blizzard Peak. And of course, it shows a tow truck with, you know, like a Toyota Prius or, you know, something that obviously probably shouldn't be out in a flipping blizzard. Uh, blizzard, sorry. Blizzard. Yeah, this is the beer. The beer. The beer. Uh, How many of you had of those? Uh, uh, I had a Michelob. I had a it's, it's my weather fool is no one in particular, but it's the people that continue to even when it's forecasted that there's going to be a blizzard you're, there's going to be a ton of snow and if you're out driving you're going to be in a pile of crap are still out there driving and getting stuck and and creating business obviously for the tow trucks well that was, <laughs> yeah that yeah that was that's people i people when people drive out in the middle of snowstorms i have never understood that you know just stay at home you know, get get some hot chocolate, sit by the fire, watch a movie, Christmas yeah. movie. There's there's too many on this time of year. But all right, Dina, oh, no, it's the people. Hey, it's the people who don't shovel the snow off. They only take, have that little spot where they can see through, and they have like two feet on the hood and two feet on the roof, and then it like flies back and hits you. You know, my, you, never mind. That, that'll be a story for later. But anyway, okay. Dina, what's uh, what's your weather fool? All right. I'm going to try to share my screen here. So hopefully. You know, Maz isn't on video tonight, so he can't oh, get us. I know. Out. There it is. There okay. It is. So I'm going to make it a little oh, bigger. Gosh. So mainly this is this is over in the UK, and I can show you at the bottom. Um, huh. Whoops. It's flip, flipping over. So mainly these people try to cross this bridge, and the tide gets really high um, one week every month. And then in November, it gets really high. So these people cross this bridge. Look at this. That's oh my so gosh. nuts. Good uh, it's, where, where is this at? This is in the UK. This yeah, is, so they, uh, they don't have turnaround. Uh, Mercia Island. They don't oh, have that in the UK. That's it's, probably why. It's no. crazy because then later they get stuck. I'm going to kind of slide through this. Look at this. Oh, oh my like, gosh. What are they thinking? I don't know. I had to turn but I hope, I hope they've got biscuits in their car for they got, they got, they got, they're trying to get to their favorite fish and chips uh, pub. Yeah. It's ridiculous. And then it's just this tiny little oh fence God. that kind of prevents them from floating away. And at the it's... end, yeah, there's the guy. He's stuck. Uh, uh, what did you expect? He's in a you know, I think all like, been out of shape about yeah, driving through yeah. blood. So, oh my gosh, not good. All right. Well, that's you know, turn around, turn around, don't drown, people. Turn yeah. around. That's it's very right. simple. We, we yes. got to pass that on to the UK. They need to pass <laughs> that. Yeah, pass it. Turn around, don't drown. No. All right, but, I'm done. <laughs> so, so my uh, so my weather fool this week. Um, so there was, a, I believe there was a video of a driver. This is in um, uh, Staffordshire. Um, I believe it's uh, Vermont. There was a driver where there was heavy fog and there was a bunch of people on the freeway. And, you know, you could barely see in front of you. There was a dense fog advisory in effect. 
And he's going 110 miles an hour on the freeway. And I'm thinking like, I'm, I'm scared to go 30 miles in heavy fog. You know, it, it, this guy's going 110. Eventually, the oh police God. pulled him over. He didn't crash into anyone. Um, so you get confused? Uh, just, I don't know, to be honest. Like it was I don't the know Autobahn what or whatever I don't know. At least, I mean, he was driving on the right side of the road. So that, you know, at least I'll give the guy that. Drunk? You know? Who knows? Yeah. That's scary, but, though. Yeah, and this yeah. was this was a pretty re- this happened December sixth. So I, you know, I, oh, I don't wow, think they really? have. A, uh, yeah, they don't have the. I don't think they have whether he was drunk or not yet. But hmm. um, yeah. All right. Well, we'll we'll uh, we'll post all those that are postable. We'll, we'll post those on our uh, internet webpage uh, at stormfrontfreaks.com. We're gonna jump to WX resources. Uh, these are just Ooh. some some great weather resources for you, whether they're apps, websites, equipment. Uh, whatever it might be, just things that we'd like to uh, fill, maybe fill you in on that you may or may not be aware of. Uh, Jen, let's start with you. I think you've got a WX resource. I sure do. So with all the wildfires recently um, in the past few weeks, um, mine is ncweb.nwcg.gov. And this is an amazing site. I love this because if you just go type that into your browser and go straight to it. It lists all the active wildfires going on, where they are, when that actually, this little section right here has been updated. You can click on it and see actually what area has been burned and it has so much detailed Hmm. information. So depending on, like we got smoke um, at the Weather Channel from some of the wildfires. I mean, it smelled like a campfire in the Weather Channel. And yeah, it was was really bad. And so it's amazing how even though a wildfire may not be in your city, but could impact you. So it's just a really good resource to have that we use. What, what's that website one. again, Jen? Can you name it? It's ncweb.nwcg.gov. Nice. It, okay. Well, we'll, uh, we'll post that as well. The, the one uh, that I'm going to show, uh, the, the WX resource I have, and, and it's probably pretty common and you guys are probably aware of this, but just recently with, um, the uh, in the last couple of weeks, we've had not only winter weather warnings, but we've also had tornado warnings all happening in different parts uh, of the country. Um, this is just the Storm Prediction Center uh, website, which is uh, www.spc.noaa, which is noaa.gov. Um, their homepage. What's great about it is it shows not only current uh, a current activity map. And it's it might not be showing up perfectly uh, perfectly for you guys, but it it has a current activity map that shows the radar. It shows current watches issued by the SPC, uh, and also the convective outlook uh, for the day. But it also gives you access to one, two, and three day, and the four to eight day convective outlooks as well, all in all in one page. Uh, you can access the current mes discussions that might be going on watches forecast tools there's at the bottom there are uh, educational links for educational pieces that they provide so it's just it's a great one-stop shop especially when it comes to storms and that's kind of what our our podcast is all about it's really a neat little one-stop shop to kind of get all your information i love that site i do every day on it every day Mm -hmm. Yeah, so cool, yeah. cool little site. So we'll again, we'll post that in our show notes on our website at stormfrontfreaks.com if you want to take a look at that. And then uh, let's hit uh, MJ. Do we have any listener questions or comments? 
Yeah, we've got a couple of them. Uh, came in on our uh, mostly on our Twitter feed um, at online FAC and at B Keith WX both made some comments about our uh, show uh, episode fourteen. Um, one of them talking about memories they had of their first weather radio back in 1988 and, <laughs> nice. uh, and another one talking about the uh, Accurite products. Uh, and then at Twitter seekers, uh, back a couple of weeks ago was, uh, excited for, uh, Tom, uh, Nizzle to visit us. Um, and, uh, so hopefully, uh, at Twitter seekers is, uh, listening to the show tonight and, uh, got to hear all that wonderful information from Tom. So that's our uh, listener comments. Cool. Thanks. So uh, awesome. don't uh, guys, we, we want to um, we certainly want to be able to not only give you a shout out on the show, but uh, certainly answer any questions or comment on any of the questions or info that you have. We're also gearing up for season 2.0 uh, as we go into 2017. And so certainly also want your feedback on the things you like about the show, things maybe uh, you don't like about the show. Let us know again. And you can email us at questions at stormfrontfreaks.com, or feel free to uh, uh, catch us on on Twitter or Facebook. So that does it for this episode of Stormfront Freaks Podcast. Uh, Thank you for listening. If you like the show, tell your friends. And if you didn't like the show, go ahead and tell us. Uh, We really and truly, we want your feedback either way. Uh, We also want to answer your questions or discuss your comments on future shows, as I discussed earlier, as we're uh, doing some we're looking at finalizing some fun upgrades for 2017 that I think you'll like as well. Special thanks to our guest, Tom Nizzle of the Weather Channel. And on the next episode next week, we have Dr. Elizabeth Austin as a guest. She, uh, wow. she is the founder of Weather Extreme Limited Forensic Meteorology. So That's be awesome. ready to get your CSI on. She's mm-hmm. also the author of the book, uh, Treading on Thin Air. And we actually have a copy that we're going to be able to give away to a lucky listener uh, next right. week. And the show is actually yes. next week, right? So normally we're a yep. bi-weekly show, uh, but due to technical difficulties, we, we waited a week to, to talk with Tom. We're going to be back again next week. So we have uh, with this show, we have three shows in the next four weeks. You're going to get your fill uh, of the Stormfront <laughs> Freak. It's our, it's our present to you. It's our Christmas present it's to you. Christmas hey, Christmas. 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 All right. So, uh, so for MJ, Brady, Maz, Dina, and Jen, I'm going to go ahead and signal the all clear, and we'll catch you next time. Oh. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Stormfront Freaks podcast. To subscribe and be notified when new episodes of our bi-weekly show are available, you can go to iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app and search for Stormfront Freaks. If you would like to contact us with questions or make comments about the show, shoot us an email to questions at stormfrontfreaks.com or follow us on Twitter at Stormfront Freak. We'd love to hear from you. For show notes, additional information about this episode, as well as past and upcoming shows, videos, photos, and more, visit our website at stormfrontfreaks.com. While you're there, check out the interactive radar provided by our friends at zoomradar.com, providing interactive weather content for web, mobile, and digital displays at cost-effective prices, zoomradar.com. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash stormfrontfreaks. Join us next time and tell a friend about the Stormfront Freaks podcast.